You know, he would walk up on stage, his pants would pull up, and it would just kind of be this blinding light that would come out, yeah. So it's always a pleasure and a privilege to be here uh, in, uh, in California and to be with this lovely family. I've been coming to this church ever since I was pr- probably, um, oh gosh, probably 21 years old. I think it was one of my first time, but 22 years old. And uh, it's been five years, and it's been a wonderful uh, journey. Uh, no idea why you're laughing, but okay, I'm glad you enjoyed that. I'm so blessed that uh, Pastor Mike asked me to, uh, to be here, uh, and um, I pray they're having a wonderful time. I know they are uh, with their whole family. Uh, Loretta and I have been staying at their house and uh, feeding their, their plants and enjoying their wonderful two dogs that have just made us feel so welcome. Uh, I don't know if you've heard any stories about these dogs, but they are pitiful. I mean, they just, they're pitiful, spoiled and pitiful. They just sit there and stare at you from... If you, have, if you put them outside, I've ever, I thought animals were supposed to be like, like to be outside, but uh, these, I don't think they know the difference between, but they just, they want to be with you all the time, going to the bathroom. There are no actual limits. There's no boundaries. These dogs have not been taught boundaries. We've been trying to teach them boundaries, but they, they don't learn very quickly, but, uh, but we're, we're blessed to be there at the home. But they are, yes, they are very, very sweet they are very sweet dogs. They are very sweet dogs. They, they, I, see, I think they tend to prefer me to, uh, to Loretta. And um, that makes them even, even better. All right. Uh, well, again, we're very blessed to be here. I bring you greetings from Little Rock, Arkansas, where we serve as uh, senior pastors. Uh, for those of you who know our ministry, my wife and I have been overseas for, uh, we were, lived overseas for about, um, I guess about 26, 27 years. I've lived most of my life outside of the United States. The Lord brought us back to uh, the States, actually to Little Rock about three and a half years ago, uh, to assume the pastor of a church that I was uh, sent out of a long, long time ago. Um, There's a church called Agape Church. It was formerly pastored by a man named Happy Caldwell. Uh, and uh, Pastor Caldwell stepped down uh, three and a half years ago, and I stepped in, and uh, God is doing a wonderful work in Little Rock, and we're so blessed and, pl- and pleasured to be able to continue the work that was started there so, uh, so many years ago. I have a good group of people, a good staff, and they've sent us here to, to bring you a word this morning on this Labor Day, um, this Labor Day weekend. Uh, are you ready for the word? Yeah? Amen. Open the word of God, if you would please, to the book of James. Book of James, chapter number four. We have some of our family with us this morning here on the front row. Everybody wait, wait, raise your hands up so they can see you. Everybody give them a big hand, clap their hands. Go. You know, most people's arms extend like this. Our family's arms only go about this high, so... That's what it means to raise your hand. Okay. Uh, I was so blessed to, to hear as we were ending our, our song set that we were singing about, um, about promises and about uh, the promises of God are yes and amen. That's what the Bible tells us, right? That God's promises are yes and amen. And how many know God has good, exceeding, precious promises for all of us? And it's God's desire to give unto us His promises and His blessings that, he's, that He has made room and made available to us. Uh, and because we know God's desire to give us promises, because He's already made promises to us, um, I think it's time that we begin to truly walk in those promises to the fullest extent God has for us. And uh, I know that God intends for that. Otherwise, He wouldn't have given them to us. And uh, how many know that every promise that God has made, not only is it true and is it for us, but the promises and the blessings of God are real. They are real. And uh, all the prophecies that the Bible talks about have all come true. The Bible is a real living spiritual document that what it says actually happens. 
And that's always been amazing to me how we can have science that continually tells us things and then, re- and then changes what they said last year because they know more now this year. And they continue to modify what they say because they have been consistently wrong throughout history. Yet people still believe in it. How many of you were not supposed to have any ice in Greenland by the year 2013? Do you know that? There's more ice in Greenland now than there was in 1971. Yet people still believe in things that continue to be false. How many know that science used to tell us the world was flat? But you know what the Bible says? The world is a sphere. Science has been wrong. The Bible has been right. People continue to believe in something that is continually wrong and modifying itself and improving itself. Because the more they find out, the more they realize they don't know. Years ago, I was in, um, I was in uh, Buenos Aires. I went down there to start a church. And... Um, and I was, uh, I was living in this bed and breakfast. And if, I don't know if you've lived in a bed and breakfast before, but you tend to eat with people you don't know. And, uh, and so I'm sitting here and I'm eating with this guy and I can tell he's not from, from, uh, from, uh, Euro- well, uh, not from the, uh, European or the Northern European area where I was at. I can tell he was from Southern Europe and I was talking to him. It turns out he was from France and he was France's premier quantum physicist. And, uh, and, he was so good at his job, he worked for the government, he was so good at his job, he worked two weeks a month and then had a two-week vacation every month. It's a pretty good job, he's got to be pretty good at what he does, he probably makes a lot of money, and, and he just goes places because he has nothing else he thinks he needs to be doing. So, so we're sitting there together and we're talking, and, and when I find out what he, what he did, I said, I said hey, uh, can you tell me about uh, the, the Big Bang Theory? How, tell me how we all, all got here. And he said, oh, of course. Now, at this point... It's always important not to tell people what you do for a living because once they find out who you are and what you do, then all of a sudden they, they, they change on you. I don't know if you've noticed that before, but people tend to, tend to change on you. Uh, when we were living in the UK, when we first moved there, I had people coming to me and dealing with our home and they were offering me all these special deals that were all under the radar and illegal. And they found out that I was a pastor and they all fall down and repent uh, before you that they even asked for that. So, so they, 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 they change. So I said, I said, uh, I said, so tell me, tell me your story. So he begins to tell me the story, and I, and uh, and I stopped in there, and I said, you know, I said that's really interesting. I said, but doesn't what you just say, doesn't that violate the conservation of angular momentum? And he said, well, yes, it it does. And I said, so what you're telling me is that what you're saying is true is actually in opposition to what scientific theory is. Yes, it is. And he said, but it obviously happened because. We're here. And I thought, that's pretty scientific, isn't it? <laughs> what we believe goes against science, but it must have happened because we're here. And, uh, and so he goes on and continues to talk to me. And I said, what, what about one of the founding laws of physics that matter cannot be created or destroyed? It cannot come out of nothing. Ex helo, it can't come out of anything. He said, well, yes, that's true. And I said, so then if nothing can come, if something cannot come out of nothing, I said, then how did all this happen? Where did all this, these little particles come from? Well, he said, we don't know, but we know it happened because we're here. I said, okay. I said, okay. And so we continue to go on. And so when I talked to him about this conservation of angular momentum, the, this, this law of physics actually basically says if, he ha- if you have this one object that's spinning, and if it breaks apart, which is basically what the theory was, is all the energy comes together, from, and comes together in a very hot, dense region, it begins to spin, and then explodes, and it breaks off and throws all the galaxies and the planets out. Well, the, the, the law of physics actually says that if that one part is spinning and it breaks apart, then everything that flies off of it will have the same rotation as the original part. 
And I said, so why do some galaxies go one way, some others way? Why do some planets have one rotation and planets have another rotation? And why have, why have some trajectories and others have others different? And he says, well, we don't know, but we know it happened that way because we're here. And, uh, and so I continue to lead him down this wonderful garden path, knowing where I'm leading him. Yet he doesn't know where I'm leading him because he's not found out what I do. But uh, I do study in fields outside of my own, so I know what to say to people. And so eventually I asked him so many questions, he stopped me and he said, listen. He said, honestly, we don't know anything. That, I, that is a quote. That is a quote from France's premier quantum physicist. Honestly, listen to me, we don't know anything. I said, are you kidding me? He, I said, well, but what about all the stuff we just talked about? And he said, well, that's working theory. But we, as soon as we encounter quantum physics, as soon as we think we got something pinned down and nailed down as absolute, then it changes. And I said, but everything that you're talking about has made its way into textbooks and into our schools and kids are learning what they believe is fact when you, the ones who's writing the books, actually knows is wrong. And he said, say lobby. Say, lovey, that's life. By the way, what do you do for a living? Ah, I'm glad you asked what I did for a living. Actually, he never asked me that question. So all this time, he never even never asked me all these mornings we spent together. But the point is, people put their faith in a lot of things that consistently and continually prove to be wrong. Yet once they fail, they say, well, I'll, I'll believe in it one more time. When the word of God, aren't you glad, has been proven true over and over and over and over and over again. From every prophecy to every detail to every historical event to every historical figure to everything that said happened actually happened. To this very day, we're still undercovering archaeology that proves the Bible to be true. Some people say, well, we don't know if that city actually existed. All we have is proof in the Bible. Then 10 years later, they'll uncover it and say, oh, guess what? The Bible is actually true. It continues to happen today because the Bible is, in fact, true. It is the only document that you can go to and know for 100% that what God has said is true fact. And those of us who understand that know that, that there's our, there are agendas in the world, aren't there? There's agendas in the world to cause us to go down and believe something that in fact is not true, which is always in opposition to what God actually says is true. I'm going to give you one more example and then we're going to move on into the actual sermon. This is just my introduction, by the way, ladies and gentlemen. So my son, we're living in the UK. My son comes to me and he says, he's, he says, he says, Dad, he said, listen, he said, I have, a, I have a problem. And I said, okay, talk to me. And he said, well, he said, I am, he said, we're studying. We're, and they were studying along the lines of evolution. He said, we're studying. And uh, he said, we're studying the different, uh, I, different ideas related to the different um, evolution of different species and things. And my son was educated enough to know that when they talk about Peking man, he can actually say that actually came from the tooth of a pig. And they'll say, yes, we know, but we're going to keep the chart up there anyway. And he goes on. Every time they would bring up something, he would point out the fact that it was actually incorrect. And they would admit it, yet continue to teach it. And so he comes to, they, come, they were coming teaching on this one uh, thing called the spotted moth. I don't know if you've ever heard about the spotted moth. The spotted moth and, and uh, the uh, survival of the fittest. And uh, so basically, it's just where the moths would land on a tree and they would turn different colors. And those that did not change got eaten by the birds. And those that did change were um were the camouflage themselves lived and uh and so he was he was being taught this in school he was doing his own self-study he came to me and he had this handful full of papers he had printed off from, from the internet he says dad the entire thing was a hoax it's all fake it was faked 
in a laboratory, but then sold as actually observational evidence. And I said, well, take it to your, your, your teacher and, and, and tell them about it. So he did that. That's always a good way to get in good with your teachers to prove them wrong, okay, just in case you're taking notes. So, so he goes and he, and he, and he, and he uh, speaks to the teacher, and the teacher then takes it and researches it, calls Seth in a, a couple of weeks later, and he says, he says, you're absolutely right. This is actually documented. It was proven. It was this university, this laboratory who did it, and they did sell it as being this. And so the teacher then had told Seth, okay, we're going to go to the class uh, next week, and we're going to just go ahead and tell them that it was all bunked, it was all inaccurate. And, uh, and so Seth said, great, got a victory, yes. And, um, and so, um, and then he was, I don't, remember, I don't remember how many days it was in between that, but he's on his way walking down the hall and walks past the teacher's, the instructor's office, and the instructor calls him in to the office and says, Seth, listen, he said, I know what we were planning for next week, but I just had to show you this. He said, the timing is quite ironic, he said, but this just came in from the Scottish executive. The Scottish executive is like the federal government over there, right, in Scotland. And he hands Seth a letter from the Scottish executive, from the government, and it actually said it in there, and he, and he read this to me. And it said, although it is understood the spotted moth theory has proven to have been a fraud, you shall teach it as fact. And that's a quote. And he said, I'm sorry, Seth, I know what we know is true. I know what we did. I know what we've been researching. But next week when I go into class, I will teach it as fact. And at the end of the day, he did that. He taught it as fact. And Seth said, well, when I take the test, I want you to know that I will fail the test because I will write down what is true. You see, we have to begin to be people who stand for what is true. And we have a world, for some reason, a world that continue wants to believe the promises of man over the promises of God. Although the promises of man have continually proved to have been manipulative and fake and fraudulent and false, Yet at the end of the day, people still choose to put their faith in something. People say, I'm not a person of faith. Yes, you are. Everybody here is a person of faith. How many, how many have, have, a, have, a, have a bank account? You got a bank account? Yeah. Do you believe your money's in the bank right now? How do you know it's there? You, you're believing that that piece of paper that they send you each month, you're believing that what that paper says is true, but you really don't know all of your money is there because you aren't actually there looking at it. Well, seeing is believing. Really? Then you should be able to just go and see it. But you know you can't because at the end of the day, you're accepting things on faith. Well, you know what? I will be at your house in 20 minutes and I'm going to take you to the restaurant. Now, I'm not there. 20 minutes isn't up. But you are believing. You have faith that I'm going to arrive in 20 minutes. Why? Because I said so. Everybody is using faith in some capacity. Either faith in people Faith in a textbook that is not correct. Faith in a scientific theory that is actually in opposition to itself. But people are always believing in something. We had this guy in Scotland when he started attending our church. And I made a few statements in, in church. And he came up to me afterwards and he says, he said, I want you to prove to me what you said is true. And I said, I said okay. I said, I can, I can work on that. I said, but let me, before I do that, let me ask you a question. And he said, okay. And I said, have you ever been to the Wallace Monument? You guys ever seen the movie Braveheart? Okay, that happened in the city where we, where we live, and there's a monument at the top of a hill uh, dedicated to him. And uh, if, you're, if you're a Scot, you've been inside the Wallace Monument, and you've licked the stones, and you've hugged the dirt. I mean, you just love, love it. You know what I'm saying? I mean, whenever we, whenever we, were, whenever we were buying our house, uh, whenever we were buying our house, um, I, 
I was meeting the man that I was buying the house from, and he said, uh, he found out that I was American, and he said, he, and it was in the, in the month of July, and he said, uh, he said, are you coming tomorrow? And I said, no, sir. I said, tomorrow is the 4th of July, so I won't be here. He said, oh, that's the day you defeated the English. Oh, go celebrate, laddie. Oh, we love it. I mean, he was all excited. Go and celebrate the defeat of the English. Oh, hi. Very excited. Very excited. So what was I saying, actually? What was the story I was telling? What was it? Okay, thank you very much. Yes, the Wallace Monument. And inside the Wallace Monument, there is a glass case. And inside this glass case is a six-foot sword hanging there. And a little piece of paper at the bottom that is printed off by a computer that says, Wallace's sword. And I said, have you ever been in there before? Oh, okay, of course I have. And I said, have you ever seen Wallace's sword in there? Oh, yeah. And I said, is that really Wallace's sword? And he says, of course it is. And I said, how do you know that? Well, that piece of paper. I said, really? I said, have you ever demanded proof from the government that that sword actually belonged to William Wallace? No. And I said, so you're being a hypocrite. He said, I beg your pardon? I said, so you're demanding evidence that that sword, you're not demanding evidence that that sword is real. You're accepting the fact of a printed off piece of paper with the computer sitting down. That you're, you're accepting that that is totally and 100% true, yet for some reason you're demanding proof from me from a document that is thousands of years old that's been proven every time it's been tried to be proven, you're wanting some special evidence from there. I said, so that makes you a hypocrite. Because you accept one reality and one truth, and you have a different standard for a different reality and a different truth. See, what you're doing is you're fighting not to believe as opposed to believing like you believe everything your government tells you. How many know our government does not always tell us the truth? Yeah. But that's because you have to pass it before you can read it. Okay? All right. Shouldn't have said that, should I? Shouldn't have said that. Shouldn't have said that. A little sinking feeling here in the, in the platform. Right. Okay. Have you found James yet? This was my, just to give you time for those of you who don't know your way around your Bible. James chapter 4. James 4. Now, I'm, we're, gonna, we're, we're talking about uh, entering in and accessing promises that belong to us, as given to us by God. And how we do things like that. Because I truly believe that as God has given us great and precious promises, He's given them to us not just to memorize and to recite, although that's good. He's meant for us to live in them and to walk in them and to possess them. But the Bible says this in, uh, in, in James. He says this, But He gives more grace. Therefore, He says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourself to God. Resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The scripture tells us this. It says, it says that, that you are to submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Part of the issue with the promises of God is this. People try to live in the promise without ever, without ever doing the prerequisite that gets them the promise. They know what God has promised, but the prerequisite to getting the promise they tend to overlook. Uh, because it requires effort on our part. Now, there is a grace teaching around today that says that this talks about effortless living, that there's no more effort. It's all gone. There is no conditions anymore in Scripture. And obviously, someone forgot to tell the Apostle James that because he writes this here. We are taught that grace is unmerited favor. May I suggest to you that grace is not unmerited favor? There's nowhere in the definition of grace, whether you look at the word charis in Greek or chen in Hebrew, it does not say unmerited. It does mention favor. But that's at the very end of its definitions. But there's nowhere where it says unmerited. Everything we have in our life is unmerited, isn't it? How many of you have merited salvation? 
Nobody. So why don't we say unmerited salvation? How about, you may have merited Holy Ghost. Did you merit the Holy Ghost? No, but we don't talk about unmerited Holy Ghost. How about healing? Did you, did you merit healing? No, but we don't talk about unmerited healing. For some reason, we only attack unmerited on this word called grace. But it seems to me here that this verse actually kind of displaces that because there are prerequisites to walking in the promises of God. Go back to the beginning of this verse again. Let's look at what it says. And he gives more grace. Can you say more grace? So that means that some people get more than other people. And why would some people get more than other people? Because some people deserve it. Look what it says. Therefore, he says, therefore. This is the whole theological thing. Whenever you see the word therefore, you're supposed to do what? Look around and see what it's there for. That's right. That's deep. Write that down and underline it. Therefore, what? Because he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, which means obviously you merit grace. Some group of people are, are denied grace. Proud people are denied grace. Humble people get it. In other words, grace is merited. Like everything else is merited. My salvation is merited not on my own acts, but because of my faith I place on the act of salvation. Therefore, I receive that. It all goes back to that faith thing we were talking about, that belief that we were talking about. One thing wonderful about our faith is this. It stands up to what is called the criterion of embarrassment. The criterion of embarrassment is this, is that we could actually take the Bible, close the book, and go to all kinds of historical records and philosophical records and look, and they'll all talk about this man named Jesus, Yeshua, they called him in his Hebrew name, and how he did all these incredible miracles and how he did all these wonderful things, how he raised the dead, cleansed the lepers, how he even walked on the water, how he died, and how he actually, they say, they write, and it's been said that he has risen from the dead and his disciples are everywhere doing the same things that he did. How can we stop this group of people? People who never believed in what we believe actually believe what the Bible says. But not because the Bible says it, because they actually experienced it themselves. There are prerequisites to everything that God has promised us in the Scripture. And that that includes grace. It includes resisting the devil. The Bible says, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Um, How many know that there are people that are resisting the devil all day long and he's still eating their lunch? And why is that? Because they've not done the first part. They've not done the prerequisite to get the the promise. They've not submitted themselves to God. Submission to God is paramount to receiving the blessing of God. If you want to receive the blessing of God in your finances, you must submit your finances to God and begin to give. How many know what I'm talking about? You can stand and say, I am blessed, I am blessed, I am blessed, and believe God for uh, the financial blessing to come in. And, but if you refuse to open your hand and give God the tithe, give God what is due Him, guess what? You're not going to prosper, are you? Although the promise is there for you to prosper, if you're not doing the prerequisite, you'll never see the blessing. It's true in every area, and every promise that God has given us. We know the promise is given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 28. But the first part of it is if Deuteronomy 28 says you're going to be blessed, you're the head, not the tail, above only, not beneath... God's going to open good treasure to you. Whatever you set your hand to do is going to be blessed and prosperous and and will be a success. And you can quote those all day long. But if you don't remember to quote the first two verses of that chapter, you're going to be a very frustrated Christian indeed. Because the first two verses actually tell you what you need to do to walk in the promises of God. And he tells us we've got to hear his voice and walk and do his commandments. And in doing these things, then all these things begin to overtake us and to overwhelm us. So submission to God... In this context here, submission to God is paramount, whether it is in our finances, it is in our relationships. How many of you got to submit your relationships to God? 
Sometimes we make idols out of people that are around us. As opposed to submitting our relationship to the Father and saying, Father, I submit this relationship to you. When you do that, what happens is the blessing is opened up and things change in your life, in your relationships. If God is not number one, then he's not God in your life. God has to be number one because God cannot be number two. It's impossible for him to be number two. He doesn't come second place in anything. He is always number one in our life. So submission to God must happen if we're going to resist the devil in our finances or in our health, in our relationships, in our families, in our job. If we want to be able to resist the enemy and have him flee out of all these areas of our life with our children and everything else, what you first have to do is submit yourself to God. When you submit yourself to God in those areas, then the blessing of God, the promises of God are able to overtake you and to win in your life. How many want to win? We all want to win. And Jesus paid the price so we could win But the way that Jesus paid the price that we could win is that he humbled himself before his father. He took upon your sin and your issues and your problems. He took them upon himself. He died upon a cross. He excoriated those sins for you so that you can live now in the victory that he won for you. But it requires that you submit yourself to him. I know that because the Bible tells us this. There's a confession. When someone wants to enter into the kingdom of God and wants to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, there's a prayer that we have to pray. Jesus said, the Bible says this, if we will believe in our heart on the Lord Jesus, we believe that God has raised him from the dead, that he died for our sins, and if we confess him as Lord, the Bible says that he would then change our life, we become his child, and he becomes our, our father. And I found this out too many times traveling around the world, and that is this, everybody wants a savior. Very few people want a Lord. He's either both or he's neither. And what do you do to a Lord? You submit yourself to the Lord. See, the Lord rules over your life. And so, in other words, you don't get to choose anymore. He gets to tell you how to choose. Let me tell you something. His choosing is always much better than your choosing. Amen? If, he want, if you want Him to, to, to be Lord over your life, you consult Him. That's why the Bible says this. Acknowledge the Lord in... What's that next word? Not some. Not, por- not, not 50%. Acknowledge the Lord in all your ways. Why? Because He is the Lord of your life. And if you're going to do... If you've watched Downton Abbey, you know what I'm talking about. Okay? You've got to go talk to the Lord of the manor. You've got to talk to, to, to the Lord of the manor to figure out if you, if you have permission to do anything. You can just break it down to your regular job. If you're not the boss of your own company, you pretty much have to have permission to take a day off. You have to have permission to find out how much time you get for lunch. Unless, unless it's already laid out for you. But for the most part, there, we understand that. But when we come into the body of Messiah, we feel somehow this is a very different thing we do. Now we just get to make up the rules as we go along. Because he loves me so much, he's going to forgive me for having a bad attitude and biting the head off of my wife and my children. doesn't work that way. You see, he's Savior and Lord, or he's neither one. And that requires submission unto him. I'm going to go back and give you a couple of stories. Go with me now, if you would, please, to the book of Joshua. Let's go to the book of Joshua, chapter number 5. We're going to read verses 13 through number 15. And this is the story where Joshua is about to take the promise. He's about to go into the promised land. So dealing with the promises, this is the great promised land. Uh, it's still called the promised land today. It's the land of Israel. And um, he is about to go into the promise. Now he's going to take the promise. But before he takes the promise, he goes to spy out the land. The first city that they were going to take is a, is a city called Jericho. In Hebrew, it's Jericho. The first place they're going to take. And, uh, and he goes to spy out the land. He, 
and as any good general would. Now, Moses is now dead, and Joshua is now the leader of the nation, as well as the captain of the armies. He goes, and he goes over the top of the hill to look out and to see the city, and he crests the, the hill of the city, but in seeing the city, he sees something else, and that's where we're going to pick up our story. Verse number 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was at Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him with a sword in his hand. Joshua said unto him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he says, No, but of the commander of the Lord, the army of the Lord, I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said, What does the Lord say unto his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take the sandal off your foot, for this place you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Just kind of lead this up to you. Remember, the land of Israel, or the promised land, was, land inha- was inhabited by giants. Joshua doesn't know what he's going to find when he crosses this border, but he's, about to, he's going to try to enter into his promise. He's going to get the promise that God has promised to him, to Moses, and to all of his um, people. And I'm sure that when this man is, when he, when he sees this man, it was a pretty shocking thing. The Bible says that this man is standing there in a very illuminated way, and he has a sword in his hand. Not in his sheath, but in his hand. Now that's going to get your attention. Most theologians believe that this particular man is actually Jesus. If most of you look in your Bible, you see that word man is probably capitalized. They believe, in theological terms, it's what we call a theophany. So a theophany is an appearance of God, like the burning bush would be a theophany, where God would manifest himself in some tangible way. The three men who came to see Abraham, remember those three men came, he fed them, two of them went off to Sodom and Gomorrah, one stayed. Abraham actually called that man Lord, and your Bible has Lord all in capital letters, and in the Hebrew it is the word Yahweh. He actually calls him, he recognizes him as Yahweh manifests as a person in human form. So these are called theophanies. So most theologians believe this was Jesus. And also it says here that um, Joshua worshipped him. And angels typically never allow themselves to be worshipped. Only Jesus would do that. But, but even if it's not Jesus, then it is a, a, an angel standing there with the sword in his hand. But even if it's not an angel, it's a dude with a sword in his hand. Alright? You're going to spy out the land and this dude with a sword in his hand is standing there. And Joshua asks, asks a very simple question. He says, whose side are you on? That's basically what he says here. Are you for us or for our adversaries? So I'm going to ask you the same question. Whose side are you on? And he, he goes on, and I love this, this particular way the Lord answers this. Notice, he says, let's go back up to verse number 13. And look what it says here. In verse 13, and we'll read that, reread that together. And he says, are you for us? And down here at the bottom, are you for us or for our adversaries? Next verse. And Jesus said this. No. He says, no. Nay. He says, no. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he says, no. No. What do you mean no? He says, he says I'm here as a commander of the armies of the Lord. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. I'm not here to take sides. I'm here to take over. You have to come to the place in your life where you're going to make a decision. Whose side are you going to be on? The Lord is not on your side or on somebody else's side. He's on his own side, and it's our job to get on his side. 
During the Civil War, one of the assistants to President Abraham Lincoln came up to him and asked him the question as the war began to rage. And he says, he says, Mr. President, I do wonder, is the Lord on our side? And the President Lincoln said this, a very famous quote. He said, the question should not be asked that way. So the question should be, are we on the Lord's side? Because too many of us are trying to get God on our side, but at the end of the day, we're supposed to be on His side. Did I just say that? We're trying to get Him on our side, but we're supposed to be actually working to get on His side. He says, I'm not here for either one of you guys. I'm here for the purpose of God. No, I love that. Sometimes no is the right answer when you have two possible solutions. Some people don't know this, but when you go to McDonald's, they're trained to ask you, do you want a fried apple pie with that or french fries? And by the way, the answer is no. Okay? That's the answer. Isn't that right, Shelly? Yeah. My cousin there would say, do you have any sprouts or anything that tastes like grass? Anything with no flavor in it, no salt, no seasoning, just, just a grass flavor, a little dirt mixed in there. <laughs> I've got the pulpit now. It works really well for me. Okay. So... That's the answer. The answer is, is no. No, no fried apple pie, no french fries. As a matter of fact, my son and I, we just came back from Canada a few, uh, few weeks ago. We got up there and he wanted to try this, uh, this Canadian uh, thing called pouton. And uh, it is basically, uh, it's, um, it's french fries that has gravy and cheese curd poured on top of it. The answer should have been No. And several hours later, I was really wishing the answer had been no. But it was yes. And I will never eat puton again. It, it's done. It's done. It should have been no, but it was yes. Sometimes that, that, this is the right answer, no. And Joshua, when he hears the answer is no, I'm, I am here as a representative of the Lord of armies. Then what happens then is... Is, he, is Joshua says that, okay, what does the Lord our God actually desire of us? And God says something, Jesus says something very interesting to him. He says, okay, let's take care of first things first. Take your sandal off. Have you ever thought about that for a minute? Take your sandal off your foot. Not take your sandals off your feet. Take your sandal off your foot. You're meeting Jesus for the first time. You're about to enter into a conversation and... He says to you, okay, let's begin this conversation. You're about to enter into the promised land, my son. Take your shoe off your foot. I'm sure in Joshua's mind, his mind is probably reeling back to when his mentor Moses met God in the burning bush and God said to him, take the sandals off your feet. God is about to reveal himself to Moses in a way no one has ever had God revealed himself before, and he says, take the sandals off your feet. As a, matter of fact, as a matter of fact, that's the first time it's ever recorded in the Bible about taking your shoes off, is when God speaks that to Moses. And I'm sure Joshua remembers this very fact. As a matter of fact, if you go to, um, um, I would encourage you just to do some research on this, but at the Mount of Mount Sinai, it's called Jabal Mose. Actually, it's the, the real Mount Sinai, not the one that they give you in Israel, but the one that's actually in Arabia. Because the Bible actually says that the Mount, Mount Sinai is in Arabia. If you actually look at, look at the actual Mount Sinai in Arabia, a third of the whole thing is black at the top. Everything the Bible says that Moses did, setting up 12 pillars of stone, putting things in place, they're all there. 
And all around the entire mountain are rocks, and in them are, are, are chiseled images of sandals that are off people's feet. So, I mean, think about this. You're watching the fire of God burn a mountain. You're having quail come in in the morning and manna come in and you're being fed and you're seeing the fire of God keeping you warm in the day and the cloud of God keeping you cool. No, the fire of God keeping you warm at night and the cloud of God keeping you cool in the day. And you carve sandals into rocks. How about a pillar of fire? How about a cloud? But really you're going to cover hundreds and thousands of stones with pictures of people's sandals that are off their feet? What's going on here? Why is the first thing that God says to Joshua as he's about to take the promise, take the sandals off your feet? Don't give me 50 confessions this promise belongs to you. Don't remind me necessarily of all this other stuff here. The first thing I'm going to do is this. You need to get on my side. You need to take your sandals off. See, everybody wants God to be on their side. Everybody, in fact, wants to be on the Lord's side, but very few people want to take their sandals off. What does it mean to take your sandals off? What is God actually saying, and how does it relate to what we're talking about today? Let's go to Ruth's gospel. She shouldn't have a gospel, does she? She should, probably. Ruth. Let's go to Ruth. The book of Ruth, chapter 4. This will explain to us what this whole sandal business is, is about. Let me kind of set the story up for you. Remember Ruth? Ruth is, is um, a Moabitess, and Ruth is the daughter-in-law of Naomi and Elimelech. And Naomi and Elimelech, they were uh, they're Israelites. They had two sons. And a famine came into the land of Israel. And what they did was they sold all their land and their houses, their possessions, sold everything to a relative. And then they fled to the, the nation of Moab to get away from the famine. And while over there, their two sons, Michelon and Kislon, I'd like to name, name your kid that, okay? Those two kids, those two boys, met two Moabites women and married them. One was called Orpah and one was called Ruth. And Michelon, he's the one that married Ruth. And, and what happened is while they were over there, um, what happened is both Ruth's husband, Elimelech, and the two sons died. So all of a sudden now you have three widows. And Naomi decides, I'm going to go back to the land of Israel. Orpah, she stayed and married another Moabite man. But Ruth said, my people shall be your people and your God shall be my God. And she leaves Moab and she goes with her, her mother-in-law back to Israel. And they get back there now as poor peasants. And Ruth begins to glean in the field of a very rich man named Boaz. Boaz, if you remember, was the, the son, or the grandson of Rahab the harlot. And uh, actually, I'm sorry, the son of Rahab the harlot. So he's, he's, they're gleaning in this field, and, and Boaz goes out and he sees this fine-looking, hot Moabitess mama in the field <laughs> gleaning the corn. And he says, dang, and, uh, or, he said it in Hebrew, so it sounds a lot better. So he just he kind of said, he said, wow. He said, I, I wonder, I wonder, I would, yes, I like the woman. Uh, it's very like our relationship is only reverse. She pursued me like an animal until she caught me. And that's what's happening here. That's what's happening here. 
Boaz sees her and just, just chases after her. And, and I know that feeling, the, the, the pursuit, the running, the trying to get away. So, 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 so uh, she's not preaching today, tonight, or, or on Wednesday, so you'll never know the truth of the matter. But uh, just uh, be discerning. You'll figure it out. Okay, so, so he goes and he, said, he wants to find out. So he, want, he would like to marry her, but there's a problem. The problem is this, he's, he can't marry her. Because according to the law, the law said this, that if, if the brother, if she was married to someone and they die, then the nearest relative was to marry her and raise up a family unto her. And there was a relative closer to her than Boaz. Boaz was actually related to her distantly, but there was someone who was closer to her. And so Boaz says, I would like to get this, this uh, know this man. So he calls a meeting in the town the gates, and he brings this man in, and they want to have a discussion. That's where we pick up our story. Verse number 6, chapter 4, the book of Ruth, and it says, And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin our inheritance. What's going on here? He gets this guy, he gets all these people together, and he asks the man, he says, okay, you're the closest relative. Do you want to marry Ruth? And he said, can I see a picture? And he says, well, I have an Instagram shot of her. Here it is. He looks at it, and he says, Yes, I would like to do that. And so Boaz says, great. However, you should know that in order to do that, you have to buy back all the land, the homes, the property that her family sold to the relatives. You have to redeem that back uh, for her before you can marry her. And the guy said, I, I can't do that. I can't. And that's, where, that's, where he, that's why he says, he said, I can't, I can't do it. I can't redeem this. I'll lose everything I have because I don't have enough substance. And it goes on. It says this. We'll start over, over again. And the relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Everybody say, my right. He says, I want you to redeem my right. This is the man who had the right. It was his right to claim that particular promise. But he wasn't able to do it. So he said, I want you to redeem my right. I want to take my right away from me. Now this was, continue reading here, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Are you glad you've been redeemed? Yeah. Amen. Are you glad God exchanged your sin for His righteousness? Yeah. This became the custom regarding redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. Can you say anything? Yeah. What happened? One man took off his sandal, gave it to the other, and thus it was confirmed in all of Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he took off his sandal. When someone was unable by themselves to enter into the promise, they recognized somebody greater than they were who could make it happen. And the way that God chose to symbolize this was to take off their sandal and to give it to the one who could really make it happen for them. As Joshua was coming close to the promised land, he was acknowledging to the Lord, Lord, and God was telling him, in and by yourself, Joshua, this whole promise you're going into isn't going to happen. You're going to have to submit yourself to me. See me as the one who can make this happen when you can't. See me as the one who is greater than you are. You trust in me and you turn over your rights to me and I will make the promise come to pass for you. How are you going to do this, Lord? Joshua says, Lord, tell me what to do. And he said, take the sandal off your foot. 
and give it to me. Taking that sandal off his foot was saying, I give you my rights. I give you the superiority. I give you the submission in my life. And I acknowledge that you can do what I in and by myself cannot do. So many times in our culture, we're holding on to our rights because we have a right to everything. I have a right to be offended. Maybe in the world they do, you don't have a right to be offended. You want to get free in your life? Take that right and give it over to the Lord. You want to walk in the promise? I have a right to be angry. Well, I'm asking you to give up that right to be angry. I have a right to be offended. Well, I'm asking you to give up that right to be offended. Well, I have a right to say these things. Well, I'm asking you to give up your right to say those things and give it to the one who can take you into the promise that you have yet to occupy because you've not yet given up your own right. I'll say this to you right now. Had Joshua not taken off his sandal, they wouldn't have been into the promised land. See, in order to get, you have to give. In order to, that's what the Bible tells us. Those of you who, who want to be first, you're going to have to be what? And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you have to be what? You have to be a servant. You have to be least. See, this, this, all these things that we see as New Testament realities are really always existing eternal plans throughout the Word of God. Take off your sandal and give it to, to Boaz. And Boaz took it. And Boaz had within himself the capacity to take the promise this man could not handle by himself and make it come to pass. Everybody wants to be on the Lord's side. Very few people want to actually take off their sandals. Because that means giving up something on their own. But listen, whatever you give up to God, know He returns it to you. Good measure, shake down, pressing together, and running over, He brings it back to you greater than you ever could handle it by yourself. So many times we try to hold on to what we believe is ours or should be ours or inherently mine. And you never move on from a place of bitterness or grief. Everybody goes through bitterness. Everyone goes through grief. But you know what? You're going to have to give that away to move forward. This whole thing, this whole custom comes from the idea of, of redeeming of rights. I'm going to go with, go with me, if you would, please, to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 25. Just kind of explain a little bit more about this whole idea that happened with, with, uh, with um, what's going on with Boaz and and Ruth, this is a situation once again where a brother dies, and the the next of kin, the brother was going to was going to take the wife and to and to raise up a family with her, because she didn't have any children. I mean, it was a, it's a broken family situation. He was supposed to do that. So obviously, if you know if we're going to Deuteronomy, we're actually going before Ruth. So this shows you how the whole thing got going, how God put it in His His law here in the book of Deuteronomy. And look what it says here in verse number seven. He says, if a man does not want to take his brother's wife, this is the one who died, then let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say. So here's the situation. The, the man, the brother dies, the brother dies, and, he, and uh, the woman goes to the, brother, to the next of kin and says, okay, you need to keep the, the law and, and marry me and, and, and start a family. And he says, I, I don't want to do this. I can just imagine the situation. I really don't want to marry you. And what happened is the woman would go to the elders of the, of, the, of the city and she would take him basically to court and she would say this to him and say this to him, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel 
for he will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And I don't know about you, but when I hear things like that, my mind goes crazy. What does that conversation sound like? They call him in to speak to him. And they say, okay, uh, John, uh, you know, this, is, this is the law you need to marry. Marry uh, your, your sister-in-law here. And, uh, and he says, I, I don't want to marry that woman. I, would, I have been with her at Thanksgiving. I do not want to marry that woman. I just, there's just no way. I mean, I've been there. I, I, I know this. I, 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 I just I tasted her cooking. This is just not something. Uh, no, I just really knew. Do not. I do not want that woman. And the verse goes on. It says, but if he stands firm and says, I do not want her. Then the brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders. Remove his sandal from his foot. Spit in his face. He gets her retaliation right there. And answer and, and she'll say, This shall be done to the man who shall not build up the house, his brother's house. His name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. She takes off the right, the sandal off his foot. He has now given up his right to, to the family. And his name gets changed. From John to the man who had his sandal removed. Now he's got to call the credit card companies. He's got to call the bank. He's got to change his passwords. I mean, this. You can see him. He goes to the bank and says, oh, I need to change my name on the account. Okay, John, what shall it be? Um, you know, just put down the house. Just put down the house. Uh, we're going to need your full name, sir. The house of the one who had a sandal removed. Really? It's an embarrassment. The man who gave up his rights. Now, this, this is kind of where the whole thing actually finds its origin. But it goes back to the idea of giving up your right, giving up that sandal, taking that sandal off your foot, saying, Father, I acknowledge that I have the right for these things. But I willingly give up that right because I acknowledge that you are greater than me. You're stronger than me. Your potential is there. I acknowledge not only that you exist, but that you are Lord of my life. And I submit myself to you. And I know you will bring me into the promised land and make that covenant a reality for me. So I began to think about, in the New Testament, we see a lot of times about about the sandals being removed. And sometimes we don't really get a lot, of, a lot into it. We just think it's just about cleaning your feet and things like that, and although it may be a part of it. At the Lord's Supper, and I won't read this verse, but you can read it in John's Gospel, chapter 8, if you want to. As they come into the Lord's Supper, and they're about to, the night before Jesus was betrayed, at Passover, and they're all sitting there. Jesus takes off his, takes off his jacket, or his, his, uh, his, 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 the top part of his tunic, his robe, and he puts on an apron, and what does he do? Remember? He washes their feet. And sometimes you don't think about this, but if you think about it long enough, it makes sense. It's very simple. If he was washing their feet, before he could wash their feet, every one of the disciples had to have taken their shoes off. When they came in before the Lord, they're about to experience the greatest moment in his ministry possibly. They take their shoes off in his presence. It was telling him something, and it still does today. We may not necessarily take off our shoe today in a customary way, 
that they did. But in our heart, we need to make sure that we do that. That we're willing to submit ourselves to God by yielding our rights, yielding our place, yielding our privilege to Him, knowing that what His plan for us is so much greater. The promises of God are yes and amen. We access those covenants and those promises by a pin code. And that pin code spells humility, spells submission to who He is in our life. Did you get something out of the Word this morning? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment, please. Father, we thank you so much today for your word. We thank you, Father God, for your plans and for your purposes for every life that's in this house. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Lord, that you would show each one of us in our life, Father God, the shoes that we need to take off, Lord, that place of submitting ourselves to you, Father, so that we can walk in the covenants, we can walk in the blessings, we can walk in those things that you have planned and purposed for each and every one of us. Most importantly, Father God, not only do we, we, we remove our shoes in, in an act of submission, acknowledging, Lord God, that you are the one who takes our rights and makes greatness out of them in every area. We, most of all, Lord God, we, we remove, Father God, those shoes today, Lord God. We put ourselves in a place of acknowledging, Lord, that you truly are my Savior and my Lord. I believe what you've done for me, and I accept it into my life, and I want to make you the Lord of my life. I want us to all pray a prayer together. Everybody just pray this prayer out loud. If you could pray this with me. Say, Father, today I make a decision for you. I believe that you died on the cross to save me from my sin. I believe that you were raised from the dead. I confess today Jesus is Lord of my life. Come into my heart, Lord. I receive you. In Jesus' name I pray, Lord. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the very first time, I encourage you, reach out to somebody to say, listen, you know what? I prayed that prayer today. Be bold to say, you know what? I prayed that prayer and I meant it. If you prayed the prayer and you meant it, tell somebody about it. And I believe that if you tell someone about it, they'll help you and lead you in a way you should go to deepen your faith, to strengthen your faith, and be the person God wanted you to be so you can go out and you can change the world for Him. He's Lord and He's Savior. Remember today, when you're taking your shoes off, before you go to bed, when you go out to the beach, when you take that first shoe off, you might want to, as you take that first shoe off, you might want to hold it in your hand and just lift it up to the Lord as an expression of what you've done on the inside today. Amen? God bless you. I'll see you at 6 o'clock tonight.